What's up, everyone? On this episode of the podcast, Ben Drozdoff joins again to catch up on some baseball this season. We talk about a lot of different baseball topics and some non-baseball topics too, but we basically cover bullpen usage, which has been pretty interesting and continues to be an interesting topic of discussion in baseball. A lot changing so far this season. And uh, we talk about some pitchers that have been really good so far and whether it's sustainable, some pitchers that have been really bad so far and whether it's sustainable, um, when we might see Otani in the major leagues and what team might sign him. Uh, we talk a lot about how much we hate tradition, which you know, is sort of a common theme for preaching sense, but it certainly applies to baseball. And we talk about how much knowledge we have, but how little we really know. So we are uh, simultaneously acknowledging that we have a lot of information about baseball, among other things, and how, how much there is to learn, too. So uh, a baseball talk mixed in with a philosophical talk, and that's it. I'll leave you to it. So, Ben, why is it that teams, with all of the data on how much worse pitchers are at going through the order in successive times, like the third time through the order being the key one, um, how come teams are continuing to let terrible pitchers go through the order for the third time? And before you answer that, I just I want to use the Dodgers and sort of the Reds, but for a different reason because their pitchers are worse, but the Dodgers as the example of what you're supposed to do because they seem to be really quick to pull the plug on their starting pitchers with the exception of Kershaw. So what do the Dodgers know that no one else knows? I don't even, I don't think it's knowledge. Cause I mean, it's, it's not a surprise. Like I, I don't think there's a single front office that you could walk into and say like, Hey, it's the third time through the order. And pretty much any reliever at the major league level is going to be better. Uh, I don't think that would be a surprise to any of the 30 teams. I think it's just execution. I think it's convincing the manager of that, convincing the starting pitchers of that. Um, you know, you don't want to. I, I honestly think that's the main thing. I think in those cases, they're either intentionally making this decision because the cost of like pissing off their starting pitcher would weigh, um, I guess, the marginal benefit, or maybe they just can't communicate it to the manager. I, I don't know. I. I would be shocked if teams didn't know that it was a bad decision, though. At least just in a vacuum in terms of production on the field. Yeah, so there are some cases where it's not that easy. Like, what the Dodgers are doing is not easy. They pull guys like Julio Urias, who I guess maybe slightly easier because he's young, but guys like Alex Wood and Brandon McCarthy and Kent Ameda, um, maybe not all fully proven guys but guys who are not you know young real like really young prospects where you're worrying about workload and things like that they um they're letting these guys pitch 80 or 90 pitches most nights even when they're going well so they're making decisions on guys that are harder because these these guys are actually good they're they're doing this with pitchers who are really good but uh I was watching the Red Sox Brewers game tonight and Kyle Kendrick in a 2-2 game going into the bottom of the fifth inning, I think was at 70 or so pitches and coming up on the Brewers heart of the order for the third time. And the Brewers have Eric Thames and Travis Shaw. They also have Ryan Braun, but those two guys are lefties, Kendrick being a righty. So it just seems 
inconceivable that your best chance to win a baseball game is to let Kyle Kendrick face those guys going through the order for the third time and just just the lefty-righty platoon splits. It's a terrible matchup. And it's not like the Red Sox don't have relief pitchers. They don't have one of the better bullpens, but they have the guys, and Kyle Kendrick is probably a worse pitcher than all of them. So I don't, I don't, I don't know how that I don't know how these decisions are even possibly made. I couldn't agree more. Um, I it is kind of mind boggling, especially with like a bad pitcher. I can get it with a good pitcher because, well, I mean, not that I obviously agree with it, but like I can understand where you would think to yourself, well, you know, I have Clayton Kershaw on the mound, and he's clearly the best pitcher I have. So just getting using that as kind of a heuristic as to like, well, Clayton Kershaw has to be better than Pedro Baez for this situation. Um, not factoring in like what the like expected um, scalar addition to the like ERA strikeouts walks, like any, any expected outcome would be given the time through the order penalty. Um, so I, I can understand that, like, not that I think it's the right move, but I can understand why that decision gets made. But yeah, Kyle Kendrick, I mean, why is he even starting um, a big league <laughs> Good game point. is a question, but certainly like, yeah, you would not want him out there. I mean, cause yeah, I mean, Joe Kelly, like pretty much anybody the Red Sox put in is just better, like overall than, than Kyle Kendrick. So Certainly Kyle Kendrick with the time times through the order penalty is going to be worse. Yeah, most relievers are better than just about any starter. Like the Oh yeah. The, the ability that a starter needs to have to be better than even a below average reliever in terms of per at bat efficiency, because we're not going to account for the value of going deep in games here. Just talking about getting batters out. It's really, really rare that a starting pitcher is better than even a below average reliever. Like, I don't know how many, how many pitchers would you say are better than the average reliever is probably, it's probably single digits. And then the amount of pitchers better than a below average reliever, maybe there's 30 or 40 of them. I don't know. Maybe anyone who's like an ace or a number two starter is better than a mediocre subpar reliever. Like where would, how much better do you think Joe Kelly is at getting an out than, or let me rephrase that. How many pitchers, how many starting pitchers do you think Joe Kelly is better than if you're talking about just getting one out. Um, well, and we'll use Joe Kelly as our it. we'll use Joe Kelly as our go-to uh, subpar reliever here. Um, so what I wanted to I guess wanted to pull up and what I'm going to do is just what the league stats are for starters versus relievers to kind okay. of like frame the context of that. So in 2017, relievers have pitched. 3,300 innings, and they have a 4.02 ERA and a 3.90 FIP. Starters, I guess for uh, reference, have a 4.19 ERA and a 4.26 FIP. So relievers on the whole, like on a just rate stat basis, are, are clearly better. Um, I I guess like who's how many are better than like Joe Kelly? Like I don't know, probably a decent amount. I mean, that that gap isn't enormous, mm-hmm. but it's still like it's not insignificant. Like, independent of anything else, like you would rather have a reliever throwing, like if it's just a one inning setting, than than a starter. 
Um, so I don't know. I, I think it's just that teams are underutilizing relievers. Um, I mean, especially, and we can go a long way on this, but like in terms of having these defined roles, and I think the two are, are related. Like, I think the same kind of reasoning behind like I have to have the same pitcher throw the ninth inning because that's just like how the progression goes is the same way it goes for the starters. 100 pitches out of my starter, whether or not that's like founded on anything at all. The same way going into a game, the manager's going to say, well, if I have a lead in the seventh inning, my third best reliever, which, I mean, it's the same kind of thing. Like, it's these heuristics that have <laughs> perpetuated their way through time despite, like, all evidence. I think we could probably sit here and scream at each other in agreement about stupid heuristics and how much they're destroying, <laughs> like, all all aspects of society. I mean, this could be, this could go far beyond baseball. There's just so oh. many stupid heuristics that are terrible. But let's just limit this to baseball for now, I guess. Um, yeah, obviously the defined roles are are just the worst. But even beyond that, there's just no there's no sense of creativity. Like, okay, let's say you want to have your defined reliever roles. Why not use? Why not just expand them a little bit? You know, keep the roles as they are, but just do more of it. So. What I'm thinking is, and you probably know more about this kind of stuff than I do, but what is keeping teams from essentially using their AAA team, you know, as as like a as a reserve for the major league team, where you could just be sending relievers up and down all the time, and then if your bullpen gets too tired, just call up starters and relief pitchers from AAA and use them because calling up a pretty good AAA reliever and using him for an inning or two is, I mean, that usually works out fine. Triple-A relievers are better than bad major league starters for sure. Um, yeah, no, I mean, I agree with the concept. I, I would say the number one limitation there is going to be is going to be whether or not the player has options. Um, right. You have to have, like, kind of the way a lot of fantasy players will designate a certain amount of roster spots to, like, streaming. In this case, the MLB team would be designating a certain number of roster spots to, like, optionable players so having a you know making sure that you have two relievers who have options and can easily be shuttled back and forth to triple-a um and then having you know three to four other relievers that also fit that mold to where you're cycling between those sticks kind of at all times you see that a little bit i think the biggest issue is a lot of times the best players don't have options remaining and and it's it's kind of debatable like how much that like having an option is is worth like versus someone who doesn't like how much better does the player without an option have to be to be more valuable overall and it's probably context dependent right like if you already have three optionable relievers you probably don't care and you probably just want to get the best reliever um Right, there's but definitely diminishing a, returns on that concept. Right. I guess just to circle back, I think it's because a lot of the best relievers don't have options because they've played in the major leagues, established themselves as the best relievers. Um, that's kind of where the survivor bias comes in. And as you you know, as that accrues, the less likely you are to have options. Um, but I definitely get it in terms of like why would a team have like a washed up 
veteran type. I mean, I don't have one off the top of my head, but like, why would a team have someone who's frankly just not very good and doesn't have an option? I mean, maybe you could argue that they could DFA them and it's effectively the same thing. It's just more of a one-way street. But yeah, I mean, I definitely think the concept of having a lot of younger players, and I think you're seeing teams do this, especially like the Reds just did it with Amir Garrett. Um, the Rays have always done a pretty good job of this as well, and they've done it this year, uh, particularly, I think, because of injuries. But they have a lot of optionable players in their bullpen as well. Yeah, it, it definitely seems like the roster flexibility... Well, another point I'll throw in is the earlier it is in the season, the more it matters because there's more randomness and unknown that, you know, if there's more season left, there's more that can happen that's unforeseeable. So yes. you would um, you would probably take that into account more. Like the value of an optionable player is probably more significant the earlier you are in the year. Um, and then obviously the quality of the team matters a lot too because you don't want to get stuck in situations where you're contending for world series and then you have to hold a player who's injured and can't be optioned or something like that, or um, not injured, but just like is struggling or whatever. Um, and you're not going to put them on the DL, but you can't option them either. So I guess there's more risk and teams uh, who are contending need to be more conservative. So maybe that's part of the reason the Red Sox have Kyle Kendrick on their roster at all. Um, right. right. But I don't know. And, Still and, and, it's, it's, it, it seems like just a lack of creativity from front offices. Yeah, I mean, and I think with contending teams especially, like, when when you're the Red Sox and you're paying a lot of relievers, like, many millions of dollars, it makes sense that you only have a finite amount of spaces remaining and, and you want to get the best relievers possible on the free agent market. Like, I can get that, that, that that would be more effective given how many resources they have than just calling up a guy from AAA like Heath Hamburg, although he's actually pretty good, but like having that type of player who you can easily send back and forth. Um, I can see it if you have a limited number of spots, but like if you're trying to fill a bullpen and, and you're only going to hand out a maximum of like a million and a half, like you might as well, I think, steal others that have options and, and give it a try. Yeah, I agree. I for sure agree. So the, the next part of this that I think might even be more important actually um, about bullpen and starting pitching usage that has more to do with in-game management is pinch hitting. So what I've seen a lot of, and it's, I think my biggest pet peeve ever in baseball is when a pitcher will bat for himself only to pitch to one or two more batters when he comes back onto the field. Like a pitcher will strike out to end the inning, come back out, give up one single and be pulled from the game. So if the leash is that short, how do you not use a bench hitter, especially in close games with runners on base? Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I I agree completely. Um, I think like just like anything else, like the, the way the decision should be made is is like basically weigh the cost of. I mean, both sets of costs, right? Like the cost of hitting, like using the pitcher as a hitter in this like high leverage situation, like. How much better could I do if I used my like my bench bat? And then the same thing, like, well, how much worse would my reliever do? Or like, like, I mean, 
I think we've argued a lot in a lot of cases the reliever will do better, um, which which makes the calculation even more one sided. But even if you have like a really good starting pitcher and a really bad bullpen, to where like it's still probably better uh, to leave the starter out. Like it's it's very easy to calculate like what the expected difference would be, like why something like that isn't a primary driver is kind of beyond me because because you kind of like look at it and it's like what is the primary driver it's like how comfortable the manager is um or something about protecting the players i guess uh feelings in this case because <laughs> that's all it is like if you pull a pitcher and he gets pissed off and throws his glove and whatever like i could see where that would have an adverse effect uh, for whatever it's worth like team chemistry um or even just like the overall morale of that player like i think that would contribute to like how good that player performs um but that should be something every player can get over yeah i guess if every pitcher was tyler glasnow then i might i might give the managers a little more credit for making decisions with players morale in mind but most players i think are pretty good professionals that aren't gonna start yelling at their teammates if the catcher calls the wrong pitch or something i i don't I don't think that these are adults, <laughs> so I don't. I don't think it's something to worry about too much. Well, right, and and it's, I think, similar to a lot of these problems. If it were stopped in like a ball, then it wouldn't even be a, de- a big deal in the majors. But because like by the time they get to the majors, they're twenty three, twenty four. They've been playing competitive, like like highly competitive baseball for the last five years, and this is always how it's been done, like. I, I can see where, like, now that we're at the big show, like, it's different. They would, like, not like that. Um, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know either. It's frustrating. But, like, especially, like, teams should totally, like, if you want to talk about, like, having a playground to experiment, I mean, the minor leagues, like, whether or not you win the games does not matter at all. So why you wouldn't try things like this, like, kind of like, like a good example, what the Astros are doing, piggybacking starters. I mean, who knows if it if it's anything that has merit, but like, at least they're trying it, you know. I, I I just don't get why teams, when they come up with these ideas, don't try it at the minor league level, and and like see if it works, you know. Yeah, I I guess my biggest issue is when people say that you need to take more into account than just numbers, and it's not about numbers; it's some decisions are about other things. But there is no other thing most of the time. Like the the other logic that goes against just using data, it doesn't exist in a lot of the cases. It's sort of just, I'd rather use nothing than numbers because people are more comfortable with, I guess, not reducing the game to a spreadsheet, which is just so ridiculous in this day and age. And it's just... I guess it's a misunderstanding of what the numbers are even for because all we're trying to do is explain what's going on and it's just this it's like an allergy to numbers for some people and I don't I I guess some people are scared of what they don't understand maybe it's that simple and I think generally baseball managers are are not mathematicians they're just guys who played baseball and speak well and look the part um there's actually something funny did you read uh brian kenny's book that he released i think it was last year um his i haven't no okay so he has this whole chapter it might even be multiple chapters about managers who get the job and it like the biggest 
predictor of a, of a manager's ability to get his job is what he looks like. So he basically talks about the idea of this like rugged, good looking, um, middle-aged man, like not too old, like maybe in his mid to late thirties, early forties. And they all look like movie stars. They're all tall. They're all white. And I think something like 22 or 23 out of the 30 baseball managers fit this mold currently. And I'm sure it was more extreme in previous years. Um, it's just, it's insane because the fact that so many of the managers share the same physical characteristics is a pretty big red flag that very little else is being considered for the job. Yeah. <laughs> um, and at some point, like it's how, I mean, it's, it has to be how the players respond to the manager. And I mean, I don't know. I, I, it doesn't. I mean, it doesn't make any sense to me, like, why there is this, like, allergy to numbers that you kind of alluded to. It, it just feels like, I mean, to me, it feels like common sense. It's like, why would you not want, like, as much information as possible? Like, I, I specifically remember there's a clip on um, uh, one of the MLB Network shows where it's um, Harold Reynolds, Hawk Harrelson, and Brian Kenny talking about, like, the basics of sabermetrics, and and of course Harold and Hawk are saying how awful it is, and Brian Kennedy reduces it down to like, well, you're saying that bunting is good. Wouldn't you just want to know the probability that like the bunt gets executed properly, and the probability that the runner moves over, and given that, like the probability that he scores, and both of them in unison say no, and that like I can't relate to that like why would you not want that information (laughs) yeah it's 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 this pretty pervasive idea throughout much more than just baseball that just because something is old it means it's the right way to do it like the whole the good old days quote unquote concept and it's just because something's been done a certain way for a long time people just think that it there must have been a reason you know there must have been a reason that uh people saw God when they wandered the desert 4,000 years ago because there's no way it could have been for being dehydrated, having no food, and eating mushrooms off of the shit of cows. There's no way that that's the reason they made up all these mythological stories. It, it must have been something more uh, divine and real than that. Like that's That logic, I think, that whole mindset sort of maps onto basically any subject matter that you talk about. Yeah, I mean, I guess, like, I would be a little, like, I guess less harsh, because, um, like, there are times where it's not even a conscious choice. Like, True. so much of what we do in our day-to-day life is just because, like, because as humans, like, Daniel Kamen does a great job talking about this and thinking fast and slow. Like, we're not particularly creative. Like, certainly there are creative individuals and, and like, in certain fields are very creative, but, like, in what time you wake up in the morning and, like how you brush your teeth and all of these like basic things that we don't even think about. Like the only thing we have is our default option, like what's already been done. So I think it's just that like Daniel Kahneman does a great job of explaining like the neurological background as to like why that happens, like why humans patterns and like basically how neurons work. (laughs) And it's kind of fascinating. Like um, I I could go off on a million tangents on like, yeah, I'm interested. Um, well, yeah. Anyway, I guess I keep it keep it reasonably baseball, but like I think that's the same idea. It's just that like the extent to which that process, like whether it's just like being 
cognitively lazy that we don't like think about these things. And like, there are times where it makes sense to be like cognitively lazy. Like you probably shouldn't be expending all your energy breakfast in the morning or like how you, you know, like put on your shoes. Like there are certain things where it, it's almost inefficient to like think deeply about like what the best process would be. Um, you would like have no, no functioning like brain power left, but, um, but like the extent to which that pervades and like when, when to like not prefer cognitive easing or like when to consciously turn off like the cognitive, the desire for cognitive ease is, is a huge problem and is why you get, basically is why you get heuristics. Yeah. So I agree with just about all of that. I guess what I'm really saying is that in a lot of subjects, there it is worth considering that there's too much of a cost to really try to analyze and overanalyze all of the decisions in the decision process. Like I think in everything you do in life, there should be some degree of analysis, but it doesn't need to be every time you make the decision. It can be, you know, it can be after the fact and it can be like a reflection period, but you're not you're not gonna think about your shoes every time you put them on, but maybe once every year or so you might think about the way you put on your shoes. I don't know. Um Maybe that's too often also. I'm not sure how often people should think about putting on their shoes. Anyway, <laughs> but in in baseball and in plenty of other subjects where the job description is literally to think about the stuff and to make the decisions, th- that cost – I mean I, I'm not too worried about the manager's psyche that they have to think too much about how to make baseball decisions. So all I'm saying is that, that the idea that – we're going to do things the way they've always been done. That is true for everything. And maybe that's okay for a lot of things like putting shoes on. And I don't know, maybe other ways that just general ways about living your life. Maybe it's okay to just do things the way they've been done. Cause there's no need to think too much about it, but for jobs or just parts of life where you're supposed to think it's, it's, it's kind of unforgivable to, apply the let's just do it the way we've always done it to those things because the job is to try to do it a new and better way i fully agree fully agree and um i guess as a as a like kind of anecdote as to uh like kind of where this comes from like where like it's it's an evolutionary process like back before we didn't have to worry about like our own like livelihood, like the fact that we're alive, like every waking second, like, like a lot of species in nature do, um, you don't have time to like analyze, like this tiger's chasing me. He's coming at a rate of 19 miles an hour. Like I'm going to need to do this. <laughs> like, no, you got to just run. Um, so, so like it makes sense that as an evolutionary contract, like, uh, like construct, this was this process to like, think non-analytically was created but now like (laughs) that we're at a state where we don't need to like constantly be turned on to like our surroundings as to like whether or not we're going to survive like yes 100 percent like like it's it's interesting as like humans functions have changed over time like now we like from an evolutionary perspective it would be much better if we could turn off like the non-analytical side. Um, but like, because it's just like thousands of years of evolution, we can't. <laughs> yeah. I think it's fair. Really very conscious about being able to. Yeah. I think it's fair to say that 
consciousness is not just on or off. I mean, it is to some degree, but we are more conscious as a, as a species than we were in like the caveman times for sure. I mean, maybe you could argue we're more conscious as a species than we were even 50 years ago. I'm not sure, but definitely more so than we were back when we could barely talk. So the fact that there's more ability to reflect means that decision processes should change. So we know more, we know more about how to think we know more like what our brains are doing. We know more about what our thoughts mean. So everything should move in a direction where reflection is is more used and is more useful for sure. Um, this might be a little bit like I don't – there's no way that this conversation happens about baseball too often, probably ever. Um, but the concept, whether whether there's a self-awareness to it or not, the concept should sort of just happen organically, I think. And there's there's some people that are just so stubborn that they, they get in the way of it for what is probably no reason. <laughs> exactly. Like, like if you asked, I mean, I don't want to, like, pin the entire belief on, like, one member of the, of the believing population that, like, is a horrible representative of it. But, like, when you listen to someone like Hawk Harrelson say, like, well, the game's just not ready for statistics with, like, no justification of why, like, that's, to me, just, like, that's unacceptable. Like, that's intellectually, like, unacceptable. To, to, to like, you know, I don't know. I guess, and, and especially when you're talking about a decision that's, that's I mean, millions and millions of dollars being spent on to try to win games at the major league level like you can't stake those kinds of like i mean you can't have those kind of stakes like dependent upon a completely arbitrary like set of heuristics it's just it to me it's just intellectually unsound yeah so I think we should give this a little bit more of a positive spin going, going forward. I, this has been pretty harsh, although I think all of it is fully accurate. But I'll we can talk about this team, who I think you like now, too. Um, the Reds have actually sort of embraced decision-making. Like, the way that I would manage the baseball team playing a video game, the Reds sort of do that. And it's kind of ridiculous that we have to give a team credit for doing things in even just a little bit of a more optimal way. But basically what the Reds are doing is using their best relievers whenever they feel the game is most on the line. And they let their pitchers who can hit bat in important spots. They platoon a lot of their hitters. They try to go righty lefty. And they're not even they're not even good. Like they they must know that they're not contending this year, but I guess they value winning enough to get the fans in the seats and whatever and Maybe it attracts free agents, so on. I don't know. But they're trying to win, and it's it's awesome. And maybe the Dodgers, too, we gave credit to for the uh, bullpen usage thing. But the Reds are taking it to a, to another level for sure. Mm-hmm. And, and I think, like, it even transcends, like, the, you know, they're winning just because, like, winning is good. Well, this is how we make decisions to where that, like, you know, in this season where it doesn't matter where they're going to lose a lot of games anyway, like, let's – kind of, you know, kind of the same concept as as testing it in the minors. Like, this season doesn't matter. We might as well try stuff. And and if you can establish that as your baseline, like, if you can establish that as kind of the baseline culture of the organization and have that become the heuristic, like, that's potentially really powerful. 
um, it's exciting. It's exciting to see like one team really just at least one team jumping fully like on board. Yeah. So more of a player specific question for you: How much, how similar now are Madison Bumgarner and Michael Lorenzen? <laughs> um, <laughs> well, um, does Michael Lorenzen own a motorcycle? Uh, <laughs> yeah, he's better than Madison Bumgarner. <laughs> nah, nah, nah. But like, but I mean, the way he's being used, like, I guess the, the pace he's um, he's thrown twenty innings, which is essentially like about half of the starters' workload to date, and maybe like two fifths. But um, you know, that, that puts him on pace for you're talking between like eighty and hundred innings, which is certainly a lot more than your average reliever. Um, at, you know, I mean, if you extrapolate this out, like could be one of the most valuable relievers in the game, like not just because of the rate stats, because his rate stats are fine. I mean, they're not like jump off the page good, but they're, they're pretty good. And if you're talking about extending that over a hundred innings, like the the volume alone is, is going to make him a really valuable player. Yeah. And then also when you take into account that he can hit. And I think there was one game this season where Michael Lorenzen was used as the Reds' first pinch hitter off the bench, probably because it was too early in the game to want to waste one of their real pinch hitters. I'm not sure. Maybe I'll give him more credit than that, and they just they just like him. But Lorenzen hit a home run. I think – I'm trying to remember who the pitcher was. I think it was probably someone bad on the Brewers. Um, but he hit like a 400-plus foot home run to center field, and – I think his overall offensive stats are at, at least better than most pitchers, and the fact that they're using him to pinch hit all the time, you know, it shows that he at least has value there if he can get a hit once in a while and preserve the bench guys. So he's doing two roles with one roster spot, which is something that a lot of teams are trying to do now. Like um, the Cardinals tried to do it with, I think it was Jordan Schaefer who got hurt before the season, but they oh. were going to. Yeah, they were going to try to have him be a lefty specialist and uh, basically defensive sub and pinch runner. He he can hit a little, but he's a pretty bad hitter. And then um, Christian Bethencourt for the Padres, who I think you could probably say is bad at both hitting and pitching. Um, So Lorenzen's a a better version of those guys. So the Reds actually have the player to do it. But you would think that, um, I don't know, it... I think you've actually seen it with a lot of teams where they use their pitchers to bat more quickly in games than they have done in the past. Like um, in situate, I think the go-to situation for this is you'll see like a high-scoring but close game in the mid innings, like a five-five game in the fourth or fifth inning, and you have a pitching change imminent, um, and then you have two outs and no one on base, I guess. And I think I saw the Braves in a spot like this pinch hit with Julio Teron because he can hit a little bit and not waste one of their bench guys. Um, and then they're not having Teron stay in the game and pitch. They just go to a new pitcher. But just right. a, just an extra use out of your roster, I think, will give teams some credit there for being a little creative. Yeah, no, and I, and I think it makes sense, especially in, I mean, you can talk about it from a, like, platoon perspective as well. Um, Michael Lorenzen hits right-handed if, like, your best bench bat is left-handed and there's a lefty reliever in the game, like, in a lot of cases, I mean, depending on how good the bench bat is, but like because it's the Reds and because he's on the bench, probably not that good. Like it makes more sense to like play the platoon advantage. Um, I've been fascinated, and like I'm actually not sure where 
I, I stand on this using pitchers as pinch runners. Um, because a lot of them are, well, I mean, there are certainly pitchers out there that are very good athletes um, and would almost certainly be a better base stealer and just base runner in general than, than like your average like bench player. But the injury risk, like I know like Stephen Wright got hurt um, and there have been plenty of pitchers who have been hurt running the bases. Um, but just the overall flexibility of the roster that like the starting pitcher, just because it's not his day to start is not completely useless or like a reliever who's not going to pitch that day, like is not completely useless. I really like that idea. Now I'm going to throw an idea at you that I I just came up with and I I have no idea like if it's valid. Okay. Could the Reds use this type of like the fact that they're using Michael Lorenz in this way as a like, potential selling point when they're talking to Shohei Otani this winter, assuming Shohei Otani comes? I think they, um, I guess we can get into the probability of Otani coming over after, but I think that they, they should certainly try, right? Like there's no harm in it, obviously. Um, maybe, yeah, I guess assuming Otani wants to pitch and hit, which I think he said he does, or at least it would make sense that he does. Um, yeah, they can say, here's our example, even on games where you're not starting as the pitcher or starting in the lineup, you're probably going to see the field in just about every game. I think that is a pretty good selling point. Whereas a lot of organizations might not even think to bring that up. So maybe it gives the Reds an advantage. Well, I don't and know. they don't have the, like, I don't think they're going to have the other orgs aren't going to have the credibility to stand upon. Cause like, even if all 29 say like, yeah, you're going to pitch and hit. Like, the Reds can say, hey, they're going to say that. We've done it. Like, right. who do you think you're going to, like, believe when, you know, like, if you have, like, a rough start to the year hitting and then our manager says, nope, he's only going to pitch now or, or vice versa. Um, you know, knowing that, like, the front office is behind it and the coaching staff is behind it, like, I think has value. Now, I'm really fascinated by, like, what decision Otani's going to make just because – money is truly not a factor. I mean, given the, given the bonus limitations. So it, it will be fascinating. I mean, maybe he's just going to say like, Hey, I want to go to LA. Hey, I want to go to New York. And, and that's what he's going to do. But like, I would be fascinated if, if it's going to come down to something about like the pitch that the front office can make. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I didn't really think about that because it does seem like with foreign prospects, a lot of times you're just going to see them gravitate towards the big cities or they'll gravitate towards teams that happen to have players with the same ethnicity as them. Like, I think uh, there was something... Well, Mankata didn't have a choice getting traded from the Red Sox to White Sox, but I think there was something about him being excited that the White Sox have so many Hispanic players and he can speak the same language as them or whatever. And um, But I think the, the big city thing is kind of that to a greater effect, because in New York and L.A. you can find all kinds of people with all kinds of backgrounds. So... Maybe it's that, and maybe people just like to be in a big city. But yeah, that's interesting. I hadn't thought about like team dynamics as much in the decision process, and I don't know. It depend. It kind of just depends on Otani, like how how much how how logical of a guy is. You know how much he values that kind of stuff. If he does, then he could probably wind up anywhere. You know, whoever can make the best pitch, and that would be cool to. Uh, see the Reds get him just because of their Michael Lorenzen usage. It would, you could then start arguing Lorenzen was like the most valuable player they've ever had because he's helped them secure, like, I don't know, arguably a future Hall of Famer or something. 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, they obviously like super far fetched. Probability of the red signing was probably low, but like I, I just wanted to throw it out as a as a as like a discussion point. And like this is the first one where the first like major international free agent signing where money doesn't matter, where every team can offer the same amount of money. Because like in the past, every other free agent, it was either like in Japan the posting process where the player has no choice at all, or like like uh, for some of the like bigger name Cuban players like Yohannes Cespedes, like you can spend as much money as you want, and then like money presumably is going to lead like reasons why like you're going to sign somewhere. This is the first one where money truly does not matter. So it's all of the decision process is going to come off of like how good the team is, like how likely they are to win and Shohei Otani's role. Cause he's been very vocal about wanting to both pitch and, and hit. And I'm sure there will be teams that wouldn't let him do that. So I, I I'm just, I mean, fascinated by it because he's such a good player but like also just fascinated to see like the first like first ever really like money independent transaction in in uh in the major leagues yeah yeah it's definitely interesting just a a side note about that do you think that otani will be rigid enough about his pitching and hitting idea to just say i'm only going to a national league team or do you think that he's he understands the game enough to know that if he goes to an AL team, he might just play, he might DH or just play in the field some of the time. Yeah, I mean, I actually have thought, I've thought about this a lot because I love Shohei Otani, but like, I almost wonder if an AL team actually has a better selling point because because from an NL team's perspective, like their biggest hesitation is if we throw him in left field and he pitched yesterday, he threw 100 pitches, like, do we want him like gearing up for a big throw? Probably not. Like, if we DH him now, granted, like from an AL team's perspective, like he's gonna have to really hit to be worth DHing. And frankly, like, I mean, maybe just like how good he's going to be pitching for like the obscenely low cost he's gonna get, like, <laughs> is worth it anyway. Like, right. Like, lost value from DH is more than made up for, and like gained value on the mound. Um, but like. That way you don't have to worry. Like he does not have to use his right arm. <laughs> I don't know. It it'll be interesting. I I would have to assume he would prefer the NL just because like he's played the outfield before and <laughs> just going with the heuristic thing. Like people like what they've what they're used to. Like I could see why he would want that. Uh, way to tie it back together. I like that. <laughs> well done, Ben. All right, where should we move from here? So, swing strike rate. Yeah. Okay. Perfect. So something that I think will kind of segue into that. Um, there does seem to be more creativity for players in their usage of pitches, which is probably far superior to the way teams are using their players. I think the players are using their own abilities in more creative ways, and maybe we can credit the managers and organizations for that. But, um, I think this started, it probably started before this, but it became very publicly talked about with Andrew Miller. So Andrew Miller, I don't know the exact percentage, but I I'm pretty sure throws his slider more than his fastball. And I think that's one of the main reasons that he's been so successful so late in his career and struggled so early on, even as a reliever, he wasn't nearly as good in any year as he was last year. Like it was, it was a completely unprecedented level for him. And a lot of it is 
his slider, which is arguably the best pitch anyone has in baseball right now. And he uses it all the time. So he sort of debunked conventional wisdom. You know, you throw your fastball in, in hitters counts, but he can control his breaking stuff that, you know, so well that he can throw a slider whenever he wants. And I think, um, we can talk about Chris Sale because he's started to take some of that strategy, whether it's related to Miller or not. But Chris Sale is someone who we talked about when we did our Red Sox preview. Um, but before we get to Sale, what do you think about changing up pitch mixes in general? Um, I, I mean, I think, like, I, I love it. <laughs> like, I love anything that's different. Like, like I mean, I think my biggest point, and Sabermetrics' biggest point is, like, if there's, like – a reasonable likelihood that this is going to be vastly superior and no one's tried it. Like you might as well try it. And, and I think like honestly part of Miller's and I don't know, maybe it doesn't work this way because each, each time a hitter steps up, he knows exactly who he's facing. But like, I honestly wonder if part of the success is just that like nobody else uses a breaking pitch that much. Like just knowing that like the vast majority of pitches that, any big leaguer will see whether it's batting practice or on like in the batter's box is going to be a fastball. So just knowing that like on average, like swinging strike rate contact rates are lower on breaking pitches. Like maybe it's, maybe it's like a surprise factor because like intuitively it makes sense that like overall the faster pitch is going to be harder to hit. And like, there's been a lot of proof that at least with the fastball, like the faster it is, the harder it is to hit. So like intuitively it makes some sense that, that like that's why a pitcher would use a fastball so much, but just, I'm wondering how much of it is just like how different he is. Hmm. Yeah. Just like, if, if everyone else in the league started doing the same thing, then, then it sort of wouldn't work. Cause every, yeah. cause then the expectations, cause a lot of pitching is about keeping the hitter off balance. And you know, that's a narrative thrown around by, guys like Harold Reynolds and Hawk Harrelson a lot, but it is whether it's quantifiable to any degree or not, it I agree with you that if every if every pitcher did the same thing in the same counts all the time, it wouldn't matter what that was, the hitters would get used to it. Right. Yeah, I mean I think I think that's the the main idea there. Um but it could also just be that like Andrew Miller, like the combination of velocity and movement on his slider is it's objectively a better pitch, a harder pitch to hit. And therefore independent of what conventional wisdom says, like that's the pitch he's going to use most. Yeah. So logical explanation as well. Yeah, I think that's true. So that's why we need more case studies, I guess. Um, Chris sale is definitely someone who would say all of his pitches are really, really good. And, And maybe his fastball is his best pitch. Maybe it's a slider. I don't know. It's probably not his changeup. I'm, I'm actually not sure what the pitch values are for him. But anyway, what's that? <laughs> his changeup is pretty nasty, though. Yeah, they're all nasty. Let's just call them one A, one B, and one C. All his pitches are great. So Chris Sale, his career fastball percentage is 55. percent He threw his fastball 60 percent of the time last year, or 59 and change. And this year, he's only throwing his fastball 46.6 percent of the time. His slider's up from 25 to 29, and his changeup has gone from 15.7% to 24.7%. So mm. he's reducing the fastball in favor of both of his off-speed pitches. But what's interesting, and I don't actually know how much this, this study still applies, because it, it was an article from Jeff Sullivan back in April when Chris Sale had only made two starts. But what he uh. looked at was 
Chris Sale doesn't just throw his fastball less. He's throwing it less in counts where you'd expect a fastball. And I think he's throwing it probably more in the counts where you wouldn't expect it. Um, so you see a reduction in fastball across the board, but I think it's he's reducing it by more in the counts where you'd expect him to throw it. Um, I don't know. It, it's kind of hard to know what the sampling is here, but the point is simple. He's trying to become more unpredictable is essentially what he's going for. And there's no reason why a pitcher needs to throw his fastball more. And even now there's evidence that most of the reason that guys end up getting Tommy John is because they're throwing too hard. So, you know, the curveballs are bad for young, young boys arms, that whole narrative. Uh, that seems like complete bullshit at this point. And maybe it's bad for your shoulder, but for major league pitchers with strong enough shoulders, uh, the curveball definitely isn't worse for the elbow. Would you agree with that? Oh, 100%. Well, uh, caveat it with, with this. Any pitch thrown wrong, you can get hurt. Like, Fair. if you throw the curveball wrong, it's, it's you're going to get hurt. But, like, if you've made it to the major league level, you're not, like, turning the door on your curveball. You're throwing it the right way. You're, you're like, you're pronating. You're not supinating. Like, so, yes. And, and James Andrews has come out and, and – even talked about this like he has he basically said like the fastball is the most dangerous pitch on the arm like in aggregate so so yeah i mean 100 percent agree like the idea that curveball equals tommy john is a vast oversimplification and is probably just flat out wrong yeah so back to the utility of the pitches because yeah i think anyone who argues part of Part of the benefit of throwing more fastballs is you're going to get hurt less. They're just wrong at this point, um, yeah. at least for major leaguers. So back to what pitches work. Um, well, I'll give this example. So when I play MLB The Show, uh, I've, I've tried to think about what pitches give me the most trouble in recognizing. And uh-huh. it's all the unconventional pitches. And the high changeup seems to work. And like the down and in fastball and up and in slider. And it's... It's all pitches in the spots where they aren't conventionally thrown. And I think the reason for that is you see a pitch up in the zone and you're thinking it's going to come in hard. And pitches down in the zone are supposed to be breaking balls. Pitches inside are supposed to be a certain way. So, I mean, yeah, it's just a video game. But essentially what I'm getting at is, well, I think when you throw high off-speed stuff and low fastballs, you generally see more home runs on those pitches. I don't know for sure that this is true, but you probably also see more swinging strikes and more weak contact. It's kind of a boom bust thing where if the batter recognizes that the pitch up in the zone is a changeup, they might crush it, but most of the time they won't recognize it. And obviously this is dependent on who the pitchers are, but I guess a lot of these decisions are based in fear rather than logic where if I throw a high curveball and it gets crushed, I look like shit. I, I look stupid and I might lose my starting job because of that. So I think you have a lot of fear playing into the pitch mix and pitch location. I agree hundred percent with that hundred percent. And I, I think like this situation is like the textbook, like Nash equilibrium game theory um, situation, right? I mean, you're talking about, okay, given that like the hitter knows that it's going to be a high changeup, like, you know, if he knows that and I throw the high changeup, like, yes, I'm, like my outcome is going to be worse, but like the probability that he recognizes that that's where you kind of get into the game theory. Um, so I, I don't know why, like 
why a study like this hasn't happened. I mean, I guess like there are elements of it that would be hard, like defining what is a high curveball or like what does a batter like. Because yeah, because you would never actually know that data. Never mind, scratch that. Because you would never know like what the hitter's expecting. Right. Um, but you anyway, could know it in a video um, game, but you couldn't know it in real life. Yeah, I mean, you would have to like, you would have to make a lot of assumptions. Um, yeah. Anyway, but like, I think the idea that like your your video game theory in this in this like this example is kind of exactly what we're talking about, like. What you're doing, if everybody played that way, would almost definitely not work, right? Right. But like, because you're the only one that plays that way, or one of very few that plays that way, like, it's it's it throws a lot of people off, and they don't have any data on you, so they can't like look it up. I mean, it would be harder for a pitcher to get away with this for years and years and years, but like, to at least just be overall more variable, you know, like, unless you had like, if you're Chris Allen and let's assume you have three really good pitches. Like who's to say it doesn't make the most sense to just go like 33, 33, 33 on, on the breakdown there, you know, like truly random, whether or not like you're going to get a fastball slider or a change up. Like intuitively it feels like that would be the most effective, assuming you could like control all, all of those pitches. But, yeah. Which anyway. he certainly is trending towards. I mean, he probably will never get fully there and, uh-huh maybe there's some threshold where if you throw two, if we're just talking about a fastball changeup split, um, maybe there's a threshold where if too many of those are changeups, the hitters become way more comfortable recognizing them because the fastball and changeup are pretty directly related. So, you know, the changeup right. success is very largely determined by the fastball's ability and vice versa. Um, so, That's a good point. so yeah, you'd, you wouldn't. You probably wouldn't want to throw fastballs and changeups the same amount, but I don't know what that break point is, and I'm sort of just speculating that there is one. There may not be one. It just kind of seems to make sense intuitively that there would be some sort of point where, if you're throwing your changeup a certain percentage relative to your fastball, it's going to be too easy to recognize. But yeah, as far as the other breaking pitches like the slider, there's there's no reason why you wouldn't want to at least experiment and see what percentage of the time you could throw your slider and, you know, where you could optimize your effectiveness. And especially a team like the Red Sox at this point in the season where they're pretty confident that even, you know, even with the Yankees and Orioles starting out ahead of them and even with Price being hurt, I mean, the Red Sox are in a position where they can sort of experiment in real game scenarios with these kinds of things and try to optimize their pitcher, their pitcher's pitch selection. Um, uh-huh. Because I, I don't think that, even if you're doing it poorly, you're going to lose too much. It's not like Chris Sale is going to throw his fastball 40% of the time and all of a sudden just suck. You know, you're talking about very subtle differences here. So I think this sort of experimentation at the beginning of the season, especially in the minor leagues, like you mentioned before, but even in the majors at the beginning of the season, I think it's worth doing. Yeah. And it's also like an easily rectifiable situation. Like if for whatever reason, Chris Sale is like really bad when he throws his fastball, like, 40% 40% of the time than just say like, Hey, go back to throwing it at 55. Right. Um, I don't know. Yeah. I, I guess to tie this back like all the way to the beginning, um, I feel like the conventional wisdom in baseball is that like you need, you know, a, one pitch for each time through the order you, you go, um, mm-hmm. in a sense that like, like, you know, a pitcher without a third pitch can never get through the third time of the order. It is just the, this is just like the conventional wisdom. I wonder, like, why, like, 
if 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 that is like the way pitchers are actually pitching, then like then it, then it makes sense why the time through the order penalty exists because like if you get to the third at bat and you're like, well, he has a changeup and he hasn't thrown it, like <laughs> wonder what's coming, you know? Like I, I don't know. I guess uh, I mean there's there's a huge rabbit hole down sequencing that that I think analysis should go down, and it, it looked like last year, like I know. Jonah Pemstein did some work on it, but like, I'm surprised that 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 hasn't that there hasn't been more on pitch sequencing because it feels like feels like a pretty accessible field. We have a lot of data. Like, I'm surprised there hasn't been more with it. Right, I think it's the kind of thing where you'd see sort of escalating progress, where it would be very very slow initially and really ramp up at some point. Um, one thing I think that would be pretty hard to overcome initially is the fact that hitters are so different and I think you'd see a lot of the same sort of thing you see in high level poker versus low level poker where sometimes it's easier to bluff a good player because they're they're giving you more of the benefit of the doubt that you maybe wouldn't bet so much if you didn't actually have the hand or something like that where uh-huh. the good player actually knows what you're supposed to do, so doing the opposite thing throws them off, whereas the bad player has no idea of what you're going to do, so doing the very obvious thing, they don't know that it's obvious, that sort of thing. Um, and you definitely can't just go by the quality of the hitter and expect that you're going to see a good relationship there between quality of hitter and quality of plate discipline and pitch recognition, like I would expect that the correlation amongst major leaguers between pitch recognition and something like WRC plus or WOBA is very, very low because there's so much more, there's so much more there than, you know, it's not every hitter with the best plate discipline is the best. Like Matt Joyce is not one of the best hitters in baseball and uh, Omar Narvaez, who has good strikeout to walk and I don't know, this year's version of Brad Miller, like if you're, if you're going to call those guys the best hitters because they have the best play discipline, then you're definitely missing something. So I think it's going to be really hard to sort of like to sort of value it, to, to really put a valuation on how hitters are, like how good hitters are at knowing pitches and sort of, you know, playing this, this game theory type thing. I agree. I think that, I think that poker is like a freaking awesome analogy here. Like I couldn't have like thought of anything better. Oh, thanks man. <laughs> Um, I think the the only place I would disagree is like kind of you were kind of conflating the terms pitch recognition and plate discipline. Mm-hmm. To me, like the way the public looks at plate discipline is a lot of it's just like walk rate, like how often do you swing, and that's like that's not really plate discipline. Well, I guess it sort of is. I mean, it's a measure. It's just a measure of patience. Like how often do you swing? Like Carlos Santana never swings. Does he have the best plate discipline? Maybe, sure, like if that's the way we want to define it. Does he have the best pitch recognition? Like, I don't think that's that's obvious. Like, we don't know that Carlos Santana sees a pitch out of the zone and, like, sees it really early, and that's why he doesn't swing. He just chooses, in general, not to swing a lot. Um, so he could still be up there guessing, but he doesn't swing a lot. So, like, I would agree that the the, like, overall quality of the hitter would have a very low correlation with just like swing percentage but like i know there have been like, i'm trying to remember that i think the company's name was deservo that does these like that actually like tests your brain and how quickly it re- responds to like st- stimulus that i think like and i know like mookie betts was like the poster boy for this but like 
that's something that I think might actually have some some correlation with what would WRC plus because like if you can actually see the pitch coming faster than everyone else, like it makes sense that you could put a better swing on it. Obviously, like it's still hugely dependent on like how powerful you are and like how much authority like you can like with how much authority you can make contact. But like I can see where that would be a valuable component. Yeah, I I am pretty I think I'm self-aware of the fact that I'm conflating those terms, but I think it's it's really hard to distinguish um something like swing percentage or walk rate or um yeah, I guess those would be the two ways that you'd know um players capacity for swinging a lot of pitches or not. Um so let's call it walk rate versus understanding and pitch recognition. I think the pitch recognition part is to some degree influenced by walk rate and swing percentage. Um, just, you know, the general tendency of a hitter to be more selective. So there's definitely some overlap there, but the whole idea of knowing whether or not a hitter actually is thinking about these things and, you know, is the hitter two steps ahead trying, you know, trying to see if the, is the pitcher three steps ahead? Am I, you know, do, does he think that I think that he thinks a fastball is coming like that sort of thing? Um, I don't really, what I'm saying is I think it's going to be, it's really confusing to know how to figure that out, but I think we will be able to know it at some point. Maybe we're talking about putting brain scanners in the helmets. Uh, maybe that's the way. Well, that's what, that's what DeServo does. Right. They do, um, I, it's, I don't think it's in the helmets, but basically like they, and I actually don't even think it's like in, like in live game action, but they basically like hook you up to a headset and like have you like push buttons based on like certain stimulus to see how quickly your brain responds. Like my argument is that pitch recognition is a hundred percent physical. It's, it's strictly like how good is your brain at like perceiving things? It's like the only way you're going to recognize a 90 mile an hour fastball in 0.4 seconds is like, if you are better than 99% of the population at picking things up quickly like that. Well, I think it's two things. I think it's mostly that, but then I think it's also sort of guessing what the pitch will be based on based on whether it's consciously deciding in your head, I think this is a fastball count and this pitcher tends to throw a lot of fastballs and fastball counts because he's a sort of generic pitcher, or it's more of a subconscious intuition thing where you sort of just get a feel for where the pitcher goes in the zone after some sort of sequence and you get into, you could get into all these pattern recognition fallacies, whether it's all bullshit or I don't know, maybe, maybe some pitchers are really throwing their pitches in pretty distinct patterns and whether the hitter can explain it or not they're they truly are looking subconsciously at a certain area of the zone because the pitchers thrown a couple pitches in a different area of the zone. So I think what you'd get there is it, it becomes really hard to analyze because the, the hitter can't even, himself explain why he thinks the pitch is going in this in a certain area and that it's going to be a certain type of pitch and the hitter may not even know that he's guessing you know it's sort of it's sort of all this neurological thing where what i was talking about is literally a scanner that is monitoring the neurons like what's actually going on in your brain chemistry not not like as the pitch is coming, you click a button to say fastball, like that sort of thing. Because I think both gotcha. both parts of the equation would be hugely important. Gotcha. Yeah. No. I mean, I I fully one hundred percent agree with that. I will. I retract my original statement that it's that it's one hundred percent physical. I agree that there's definitely some aspect of like mental preparation and 
pattern recognition um, that, that would go into it. Cool. So we've gotten two sabermetric nuts to both say that hitting is largely mental, which um, I think is kind of amusing. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I mean, in simple terms, like these are still human beings, but like <laughs> going from making like a, a systematically like, like systematically dumb decision, like bunting, um, <laughs> doesn't require a lot of brain power. Yeah, definitely not. Um, so there was, there was one other thing that I think we were going to talk about, and Chris Sale obviously has a really high swinging strike percentage. Swinging strike percentage is just the best stat. We always use it for figuring out if pitchers are good, or good at getting whiffs. It's literally just the percentage of the time that the guy will swing and miss. Um, mm. So we have a couple examples this year of pitchers who are either getting way more whiffs than they used to, but you don't see it in their traditional results and guys who are getting way less whiffs. So my extreme uh-huh. case is, um, I think we can both agree that Chris Sale's production this year is pretty reliable and whatever he's done with his pitch mix and getting getting more swinging strikes, I think he's good enough and the, the logic there is good enough that I'm okay with saying Chris Sale is, you know, the second best pitcher after Kershaw, if not the best. Um, let's go with number two. Chris Sale has been phenomenal. Um, yeah, I would agree with that. So there are a couple other guys that are getting tons of swing and misses that it, it's just kind of strange. So we have Wade Miley, who's kind of come out of nowhere. Uh, Trevor Cahill, you could say the same thing. And then uh, Kenta Maeda has an ERA in the mid-fives, I think, and he's fifth in all of baseball in swinging strike percentage. Um, I think the top four is Salazar, Sale, Scherzer, and DeGrom, and then Maeda sits there at fifth. Um, yep. so I'm pretty confused about him and he also has a pretty, pretty strange schedule of opponents he's faced so far. So he's faced the Padres twice. He's faced the Phillies at home. He's faced the Diamondbacks at home, but then he's also faced the Diamondbacks in Arizona and he's had one game at Coors Field. Uh, so I don't really know what to like. It, it's all the most extreme circumstances. And then, uh, after you weigh in on him, I want to talk also about Danny Duffy and you Darvish who are uncharacteristically not getting any whiffs. But um, I don't know. What are your thoughts on any of those guys? Um, well, I think like, I think an important sabermetric concept um, that I'm about to dive into is that like it, there's no such thing as like a binary like good or bad stat. Like swinging strike percentage is like <laughs> a lot better than pretty much anything else we have. But like – I think this is where like FIP misses it to me is like just to assume that a pitcher deserves 100% credit for all strikeouts and 0% credit for like anything that happens in play except for home runs like to me seems foolish and that's where like a stat like DRA to me does a great job because they basically look at like what the the model is doing is looking at like how much control does a pitcher have over this like even if year to year like like BABIP only has a like R squared of point one like we'll at least credit the pitchers who are good at, at you know good at suppressing Babbitt or have been good at suppressing Babbitt for like you know 10% of that ability like and I think like you know swinging strikes even though it's less noisy than pretty much anything else like that's where like maybe Kent Tomato is just a an outlier in terms of like the competition he's faced which is also controlled for in DRA um, or, or maybe it's just like pitchers deserve 75% of credit for all the swinging strikes they get. And 
as a result, like we should be confident to some degree that Kenta Maeda is really good at missing bats, but like there's still plenty of noise. I think that's kind of where I would weigh in, like rather than saying like he's definitively good. Um, it also could have to do though with like how much he works in the zone. Now he doesn't walk a lot of guys, but like it makes sense that the more you work out of the zone, the more likely you are to get swing, swinging strikes, right? Because like contact rates are hugely dependent on like where the pitch is located. So if you like a pitcher with whose stuff doesn't change at all can vastly increase their swing strike percentage by simply throwing out of the zone more, that's going to come at like, obviously there are going to be costs associated with that. Like you're going to walk more people, but like it could be something like that too. Yeah, so there's actually an XK rate that Fangraphs has done. I think it was Mike Podhorzer is the guy who did it. Um, and essentially, swinging strike percentage is the most important thing for getting strikeouts, but it's far from the only thing. So I think you, I think what his equation shows is looking strikes are second most important after swinging strikes, and it's a pretty close second. Like Kyle Hendricks is able to strike out way, way more guys than you'd expect. Um, from his conventional swinging strike percentage number because he gets a lot of looking strikes. And I think you see that with guys who just have really good command. Um, And then first strike percentage is huge, obviously, because if you get the swinging strikes when you're ahead in the count, that's going to lead to more strikeouts. So Uh getting swinging strikes on 2-1 pitches versus 1-2 pitches is a massive difference in terms of getting a strikeout. And then just overall strike percentage is something to figure into the equation too. So I think a lot of times... Um, I think a lot of times people who are looking at this stuff for fantasy baseball or daily fantasy or whatever, they're trying to figure out who the best strikeout guys are. And they think that there's almost this perfect correlation between swinging strike percentage and strikeouts. And I mean, forgetting the fact that strikeout percentage, you know, actually getting the strikeouts isn't the best thing either when it comes to pitcher success. Cause like you said, there's suppressing exit velocity and contact and whatever, um, but even if we're just talking about purely getting strikeouts, swinging strike percentage doesn't correlate perfectly. I mean, it's it's a pretty good oh, yeah. correlation, but yeah, there's a lot more that goes into getting strikeouts than just getting swings and misses. So I think what I'm more concerned with about these specific players is that their strikeout rates in past years were tied to their swinging strike percentages and when both things drop simultaneously, that's where there's much more cause for concern than just someone like, let's say, a Kyle Hendricks who maybe is striking out the same number of guys, but he's just continuing to do it with low swinging strike numbers. Mm. Yeah, no, I, I think that makes a lot of sense. I mean, there's always always multiple predictors. Is I mean, to a certain point, is always going to be better than having just one. Um, so, and, and uh, actually to kind of... I pulled up Kenta Maeda's uh, Fangraphs page to kind of like, I guess, uh, try to confirm my suspicion. And his actually his zone contact percentage only dropped by one percentage point from 82 down to 81. But his O contact percentage, so contact out of the zone, dropped from 62% down to 49%. So like basically he's just a lot more successful when he throws out of the zone. And, and his zone rate has dropped by three percentage points. So, I mean, I guess my, my suspicion, which was just that he's throwing more out of the zone, was, was essentially, I guess, in this case, correct. But he's also become more effective when throwing out of the zone. So, I don't know. It's, it'll be interesting. Like, 
it'll be interesting to see if, like, kind of the, on the, the same, like, Nash equilibrium, like, if hitters will start to take more pitches because he's really not walking anyone. And that could be a product of facing, like, teams with, like, not very good plate discipline like the Padres. But it'll be interesting to see going forward, like, if his walk rate spikes as a result of throwing in the zone less. Hmm. So it hasn't, though. So I guess you just it's just a really weird profile when you have a pitcher who is not throwing the ball in the zone, he's getting a ton of swing and misses, and he's not walking anyone. So by all accounts, this is a this is an essentially perfect pitcher. Yet his ERA is 581. He he's getting no grounders. His home run fly ball percentage is really high. Um, part of that ERA is his left on base percentage is low, so we can attribute almost all of that to luck. But it's just weird that I guess over if you saw this profile over a full season, you'd say, "What the hell is going on?" It's essentially when he throws it in the zone, he gets crushed, and when he doesn't throw it in the zone, he gets a strikeout. Like I guess that sort of thing can happen over a thirty-one an example, but I don't know. Something's <laughs> got to give there. You're not going to continue to get destroyed on all your pitches in the zone and get a swing and miss on all your pitches out of the zone for the whole year. Right. I mean, I think like clearly, as you alluded to, the most likely outcome is just some form of regression probably in probably in every category but at least in in the majority of categories yep yeah i think that's that's kind of a fair statement about anything but i think it it it, it, it definitely is applicable here i'd say it's more applicable here than it is about most things so yeah certainly agree um it's probably average yeah that's it's probably less and more ever say <laughs> So, what do you think is wrong with both Darvish and Danny Duffy? Anything? Should, like, are you concerned about those guys? Darvish, I don't know what to think, just because like, no, none of the other indicators are are like bad. Um, like fastball velocity is fine. Um, I don't know. It, it could just be noise. The one thing, like, I, I guess you can't rule out. Like, since we now have a new way that Fangrass is tracking like pitch movement. Like, it's hard to compare year to year, like, how his pitches are moving in 2017 versus in 2016, um, just because of the, like, longer flight time for when TrackMan records versus when SportVision records at, I think, 40 feet from home plate, whereas TrackMan's 50. Um, so more flight time to record the movement. Um, so it's really hard to hard to measure there. So I think the only possible explanation other than just noise is that, like, his pitches aren't moving as much. Maybe like an arm slot has changed or like he's just doing something mechanically wrong on one of his breaking pitches to where he's getting like less effective spin. I don't know. I mean, that's, those are really the only, only things I can come up with for Darvish. Um, Danny Duffy, I honestly haven't seen pitch a lot this year. Um, but I think like with Danny Duffy, I mean, because with you Darvish he's been so good like he was so good in Japan was so good in the states like it's to me unlikely that at age 27 I think he is he's just suddenly not good anymore Danny Duffy has more or less been bad his whole career except for last year and I mean I think like with him you could just argue it was regression in, in a sense that like last year he was really good um and he shouldn't continue to be good um, I don't know. It's, it's, it's tough. It's tough to like figure out. It's tough to just like try to attribute a cause to something without like truly knowing the cause. Yeah. <laughs> like 
the Nassim Taleb classic. But I mean, <laughs> his swing strike rate isn't that much worse than it was last year. So maybe he's just getting unlucky this year and was somewhat lucky last year. And, and as a result, like the difference between those two, like error terms, essentially like the, are, are make it look like a bigger deal than it actually is. Yeah. I think the Duffy drop off seems like a quirkier statistical issue where with uh-huh. Darvish, you're seeing just worse performance across the board and maybe it's a sample size problem or um, maybe he's pitching hurt or, I don't know, any number of reasons. But with Duffy, there's I think there's more to consider because if you look at his plate discipline profile, yep. um, most notably the swinging strike percentage, it's down, but it's not hugely down. And if you're looking at zone percentage for a strike percentage, um, most of that stuff is intact. The only thing that's up is zone contact percentage um, and zone swing percentage. So, And neither of those things are up by any hugely significant degree. Um, he's Duffy's just getting hit more when he throws in the zone. Um, what you don't see is are the zone pitches too much towards the center of the plate versus last year. I don't, I don't really know how you'd even quantify that. And um, actually, before I continue with Duffy, I think this is sort of an interesting philosophical issue that you have with a lot of statistics. Is and actually, now that I'm remembering it, we talked about this exact thing when we were previewing either the Red Sox or the Rays. I don't remember, but when you're talking about straight averages versus distributions with a lot of statistics. You, you really have such a hard time knowing what's going on with straight averages. Um, my go-to example for this would be exit velocity, where if you have two hitters, um, and we'll use extreme numbers, you have two hitters who both average 90 miles per hour on their contact, and one hitter does it just by hitting it between 85 and 95 every time, and then the other hitter hits it 110 most of the time, and then once in a while has a pop-up that skews the data and their average is way lower. I mean, that hitter who's hitting it hard most of the time is so much better than the hitter who just kind of hits it, you know, average speed always. So when you're talking about like, I don't know, if we had a stat for Duffy, what is the average distance from the center of the zone on his pitches? That would tell you next to nothing because if he's throwing it right in the heart of the plate rarely and on the corners most of the time, that would look the same as throwing it, you know, middle in or outer in, you know, sort of near the center, but not quite in the, in the direct center. If he's doing that always, um, that's, that's a different story. So I would guess there's something about Duffy's command where he's been more hittable, but it's, it's really hard to attribute a cause there. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that was a, that's a good analysis. Um, I mean, the one thing I would say, like, the zone contact rate is, to me, like, a pretty, like, I, I think that's a pretty big indicator of pitcher success, just in general, um, especially, like, Definitely. year to year. Like, seeing him jump right back up to where his career norm is, to me, suggests that, like, perhaps last year where he dropped, like, a huge amount. I mean, he dropped from, what, 85 down to 81. And in terms of, like, zone contact, like, that's like the standard deviation on that's pretty small. So that's a big drop. Like he was clearly doing something like, like his outcomes were much better. Now, maybe like whether his stuff is regressed or his command is regressed or like the league is just figuring him out or it's just random noise. Like something is happening to where like his zone contact rates are right back where they were like when he was terrible for pretty much the whole rest of his career. So that would be like the one like big red flag to me is the, the jump in zone contact. But like 
who knows? Like maybe he was just overachieving last year. Maybe he's underachieving this year, and the combination of the two just leads to like this perception that he's all suddenly much worse. Even though like the true average might not be like, or the true expected value of his performance might not be any difference. Yeah, it also is worth noting his velocity is down. I, I I'm not sure if you said that, but I was I was thinking too much about the, yeah uh, yeah because I it, it's you get fixated on these these more deeper analysis stats. Like I'm, all I'm thinking about right now is zone contact percentage. And if he's throwing it right in the heart of the plate, but yeah, his velocity is down too. So that, that would have something to do with it. But I guess what makes it, yeah, I guess there's a red flag with mostly everything except the swinging strike percentage, which is lower than last year, but still significantly higher than any other year of his career. So maybe, yeah, last year's Duffy was an aberration, but we're still talking about, improvement versus improvement for him relative to the rest of his career. So he's not as good as last year, but he's, uh, he's somewhere in between. And like we were just saying, that's generally the case with everything. <laughs> I was going to say, it seems like, it seems like a very like sound, uh, <laughs> sound theory on that. Like, but the problem is, and, and like, I don't know, I think this is just a systematic problem with like human perception in general. Like that's boring. Like to just yes. say like, well, you know, Actually, the projections haven't changed that much. So we really don't think this player is that different. Is like boring. Like it's more exciting. Like back in I think 2015 when like Jake Marisnik was suddenly tearing the cover off the ball, saying like trying to figure out like what's Jake Marisnik doing? Like what what adjustment did he make to where he's good now? It's like well, actually our projections still say he sucks. But like <laughs> in in a poll. In a poll, like all the Fangraphs users who are generally the more like technically literate, were saying like, "No, he's good now," and like even though all the data suggested he wasn't, and he turned out not to be. Like, I don't know. I mean, you get you get examples like Carlos Carrasco, where like the, the opposite is true. I'm certainly not saying it's always the case, but like I think even even the most technically technically literate person is subject to like trying to attribute a false cause to like what's actually just random noise. Yeah. It's funny. Uh, the, the amount of listeners that we just lost from this conversation about Danny Duffy is, you know, it's probably like, I don't know, 500,000 to a million listeners. And if we attributed, uh, if we attributed Duffy's flaws to some sort of personal issue or he, I don't know what, what could Duffy have done? He's been hitting the clubs too late and that's why he sucks. I don't know. Maybe we would have gained a half a million listeners. Maybe that's how it works. That's what people want to hear. We'll just give some bullshit reason that probably isn't even true. And just, Hey, this is the narrative now. Um, I feel like that's what's happened to so much of like baseball writing in general. Like I don't even want to call out individual sites, but like, and I think it's just cause that's what people want. People want like an attempt to see like what is possibly like, People want like this kind of hot take that like oh like oh yes the hot take like uh like um who's the guy on the Padres Trevor Cahill like Trevor Cahill's good now like here's why and just like you know put up a pretty like nonchalant false cause argument and then say he's and then come away with the conclusion that he's good now that apparently what gets reads but just saying like eh Trevor Cahill's probably about what we thought he was last year because we have data now that that like he was good for this stretch of time. Our projection now is better for him than preseason, but not that much. That's just boring, <laughs> but it's the most accurate thing that you could say. <laughs> Sounds really boring, Ben. 
What do you? It, it does. It sounds very boring. <laughs> what uh? What is your solution? I mean, you probably don't have one yet, but let's think about a solution for this this really just disastrous problem in life that we're going to have now where since we have we can quantify everything just the whole world is going to be so much more boring well i mean i think there's like there's reasons to like and i think like the good cases of articles that i've i've just trashed on are ones that will like jump to an external factor like hey let's look at a video of his swing like let's look at like his velocity let's look at his pitch movements let's look at his arm slots like things like that where you can say like at least at least this is another thing that's changed like and i think obviously too often people assume like these two changes happen they must be related and in a lot of cases they're not but like to at least look and explore that and not just come away with the like not just immediately jump to this like correlation equals causation conclusion i think that's the biggest thing like it's not even that I mind, like, because, yeah, I mean, it's good to explore, like, when something outside of the norm happens, like, what else might have happened um, alongside it. But, like, to just always jump to correlation equals causation, I think that's the biggest issue I have with any kind of any kind of baseball writing. <laughs> yeah, I, my personal, I think this is what I've been saying lately, and it, I don't even know if it makes sense. I haven't really asked anyone to analyze it, but essentially, correlation correlates with causation. Do you say that's fair, or is that too uh, is that too oh, obvious and precise? And like that's exactly what the term means. <laughs> I like that uh, correlation correlates. I've never heard that. Um, Correlations correlate. That's pretty obvious, right? But I feel like people yeah. lose that sometimes. But I think that's a good. That's like a good synopsis of like like the two are the two are correlated. It doesn't mean that like when there's one, there's always the other. Like it's not a perfect relationship, but it's also like not nothing. Yeah, I think like, sometimes people will say it's nothing, and then I don't know. You get people who are new to statistics, and I would say that for the first three months after I read Moneyball, I probably I probably said things like defense is irrelevant. You should never bunt. You should never intentionally walk anyone. You should never steal any bases. You can just put anyone at any position and it's fine. Like the, you know, the opposite extreme. The whole book, right? Yeah, that's what, that's what Moneyball's about. (laughs) The song base person. Scott Hatterberg and Barry Bonds are basically equal. (laughs) I think that's the conclusion of the takeaway. That's one line summary. That's what it says right under the subtitle of Moneyball. Scott Hatterberg and Barry Bonds are basically clones. Oh, man. That's that's awesome. But, um, but yeah, no, that's a good – and I think like there are a lot of factors that would that would contribute to like how substantial is that correlation. Is it like an R squared of 0.1 or is it an R squared of like 0.8? Like, and, and I mean – but I think just acknowledging like, hey, there is a chance that like because – Carlos Carrasco is better now, and because he's like using his this split change now, like there's a chance that this is why he's better. But not to just like flat out say like Carlos Carrasco's better now. He's using a split change up. Like that's why fact. Like <laughs> that's like <laughs> right. I think just refusing to acknowledge that there's like another outcome is 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 foolish. And I think like my like my reaction is always like just to go as far to the other extreme as possible right isn't right like we have to be able to acknowledge that there's a a like 
chance that, that it's true while not just automatically attributing it, like automatically assuming it's true. Yeah, we have to be careful because a lot of times it's really easy to get caught up in how sound your own logic is. Like we can say, oh, it's obvious this is real. Look at Carlos Carrasco's split change. It's a great pitch. And we can say, um, another example that seems to be working, look at Mitch Hanniger or Yonder Alonso's swing plane change. That's clearly why those guys are better now. And sometimes there are other logical explanations that seem illogical because we're not used to them or... I don't know, whoever's saying them doesn't have the credibility or they don't word it properly. And then we sort of give too much credibility to the types of logical analysis that we're used to. And then we sort of write off, I don't know, I guess me and you would probably both have the tendency to write off more of the mental factors. So not that not that we should change too much of what we're doing because the tangible stuff tends to be more predictive, but it's just something you need to be careful about in analysis. I agree with that. Like, I, I know, like, one of my tendencies is to jump, like, too far to the other side. And even though, like, jumping too far to the other side, like, in my opinion, still would make me more right than, like, the person who I would be, I guess, like, disagreeing with. Like, it's still not right. Like, acknowledging that what they've said is at least, like, has a chance to be true is, is something I'm not good at. <laughs> and it's something I need to get better at. <laughs> but like I think it's it's the same concept as what you were talking about like oh bunts are bad now like almost like kind of an oversimplification of like jump to the other extreme like managers are dumb bunts are bad like, <laughs> like not these are like and I think this is this gets back to like the DRA point like just having a one or zero like a binary classification of pretty much anything is 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 going to be wrong like <laughs> qualitatively so I think yes. that's where like even though like I think it's more likely to be zero than one, acknowledging that the expected value is like point one rather than just it's a flat out zero. Like basically extending that to just the way I perceive things in general. Yeah, I think we have a we have a few solid conclusions here. So we have traditions are dumb, we have <laughs> binary thinking is bad, those are obvious, um, bunts are bad, and then Scott Hatterberg is probably an MVP candidate. <laughs> <laughs> if anyone's fast forwarding to the end, like, <laughs> yeah, just walk away with those four points. You don't need to listen to the rest of it if you've only listened to the last 30 seconds. Oh, man. Yeah. I mean, you you can really get me on a soapbox with these kind of topics. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> me too. It's, uh, it's all fun. I, I, I think there's a lot that everyone, myself included, has to learn in the world. Yeah. <laughs> We, we, we know more than most people, but we know almost nothing anyway. That's that, that I think is sort of conceited, but also not that much. So I don't know. That's, that's how I feel when we talk about baseball, at least. I think that's like, yeah, no, I mean, there are definitely like plenty of people who know more than me, but like, I think I know a lot more than most people, but like, I think, I think, I mean, really your, your synopsis there was like, to me, something I a hundred percent agree with. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. I guess what I really mean is if you're in the 99th percentile of knowledge, you still have almost no knowledge. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. That's uh that, yeah, that's the, that's the final point. We, we actually don't know anything. So I think this has been a fun talk about things that we are pretending to know, but actually don't know. That's a, um, that is like a fantastic, like if, if there was actually one takeaway message, I think that would be it. That and it's probably average. 
Like, <laughs> just take those two statements. <laughs> those are two statements that I think are, are true. Probably, like, two of the most true things that, that like, anyone could come up with. This has just been... Like, you know, this has just been fantastic. Just so many, so many truths about the world have have come about in this this simple discussion about swinging strikes, and it's it's really been a blast. I think uh, I think we should call it here because it's been just too much fun, and I don't I don't think I can have any more of it. Agreed, agreed. I've, I've reached my the point where the diminishing marginal return is whatever marginal return is diminishing <laughs> <laughs> and also just sort of need to like dial back the the fun for the day save some for tomorrow you just can't you just can't you can't waste it all at once you know that's that's always bad just like how teams should save runs for tomorrow same kind of thing yeah right? you're up 10 nothing just bunt out every time <laughs> <laughs> all right well uh, thanks again matt uh always appreciate you having me on yeah thanks for joining us always All right, take it easy. All right, talk to you later, Ben.